My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com, and you're listening to the Trainfully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. Now, if you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, give me a follow on Instagram. My handle is at Elastic Golfer, and subscribe to the YouTube page. The handle is at Trainfully. Now, in this episode, David Wicks is back with us. He's going to give us an update on how his season is going so far in the Sunshine Tour, and he's had a pretty impressive start. And guys, there's an opportunity to work with him as a sponsor. His current partners include Titleist and Nike. Okay, so this is a pretty unique opportunity to network and forge relationships with other sponsors, industry professionals, and potential business partners. So if you want to learn more about that, Either reach out to myself or you can reach out to Dave directly as well. I'll put his contact information in the show notes. Now, with Dave being here, I thought this would be a really good opportunity to introduce the concept of injury surveillance. Because with guys like Dave, like professional golfers, we have to take injury prevention very serious because their paychecks literally depend on it. Injury surveillance is the foundation of injury prevention. It's the ongoing collection, analysis, and interpretation of injury data. So with injury surveillance, we monitor the types of injuries that happen, how they happen, who gets injured, and why and when the injuries happen. So this is the recording of injuries on a large scale, right? You can do it with individual athletes, but the concept of injury surveillance is large scale because we want to learn what types of injuries are common in our sport. Now, keep in mind, injury surveillance is very challenging because, first of all, we have to somehow collect all of this data, right? And then we have to store it somewhere, and it has to be stored in a manner that makes it easily accessible so that we can pull it out in order to analyze it and interpret it, right? So this is not an easy process. We can certainly just go online and do a Google search for the most common injuries in golf. The problem is that information, first of all, is very incomplete, right? We can't do very much with that information. Also, there just hasn't been very many well-designed epidemiological studies evaluating the distribution of injuries in golf yet. So although we can go online and look this information up, there just hasn't been very many well-designed studies done yet. So we don't have a full data set to work with. So I reached out to Dr. Dan Coglin. Now you may remember Dan, he was a guest on our show. He is the head of strength and conditioning for the DP World Tour. He and Dr. Jack Wells, who is the lead sports scientist with the Professional Golfers Association, host the golf performance network which i'm a member of and if you're a golf performance nerd like i am i recommend you join the golf performance network is a brilliant community that focuses on strength and conditioning sports science and sports medicine and golf so i asked dan if he could share some of the injury data from the dp world tour because they've collected a lot of this data but as i mentioned injury surveillance is very challenging you need to have a way to somehow access all of this data. And he informed me their current medical record keeping system doesn't make data export for research and development very easy. So he, he doesn't have a comprehensive data set to share with me yet, but he did say that they're in the process of changing their system so that it's easier for them to pull information out, share it with the wider community so that we can do some more research with it. So I'll keep you guys updated on that data. In the meantime, he did share two studies with me. And in those studies, 67% of reported injuries were to the spine. So either the lumbar spine, thoracic spine, or cervical spine. And of those injuries, the lumbar spine was the most common injury site. 17% of reported injuries were to the upper extremity. So either the shoulder, the elbow, 
or the hand and wrist. And of those injuries, the hand and wrist was the most common injury site. And 17% of reported injuries were to the lower extremity. So the hip, knee, and foot and ankle. And they didn't list which injury site was the most common in the lower extremity. Now, you might be asking, why didn't they list the specific injuries? We don't really need to be specific with exactly what type of injury occurred. We really just need to know the body parts that are the biggest burden so we can target those areas. Okay, so again, injuries to the spine were the most common in this data, followed by the hand and wrist. Okay, so those are the types of injuries that happen in golf. The next step in injury surveillance is to identify risk. And what we do is look backwards from the injury and ask, how can we stop this from happening? Answering that question requires research. And again, we haven't done that research yet in golf, but this is an example of how we would use that injury data from the DP World Tour. In the meantime, we can look to other sports and soccer in particular has some really interesting studies. Now, obviously there's really big differences between soccer and golf, but we can still learn a lot from these studies. So this was a study by Matt Wallen published in 2020. He and his research team used a questionnaire. It's called the Oslo Sports Trauma Research Center Questionnaire. It has four questions on it. The researchers had the soccer players fill out this questionnaire every week and answer the questions based on the previous week. The questions revolve around participation. Did they have to reduce their training volume due to an injury? To what extent did an injury affect their performance? And did they experience any symptoms? So again, the players answered these questions every week and their answers were based on the previous week. One of the things the researchers found was if a player reported that they had tightness or discomfort, but it wasn't serious enough to reduce their training and they were still able to play, they had a 28% chance of suffering a time loss injury the next week. So a time loss injury is an injury that's serious enough to keep the player out of training or competition. So if a soccer player feels tightness or discomfort, they have a 28% chance of suffering a time loss injury within a week. Another thing the researchers found was 94% of all time loss injuries to the knee were preceded by tightness or discomfort in the knee. Okay, so for 94% of all serious knee injuries, the player felt something in their knee the week before. 90% of all hamstring time loss injuries were preceded by tightness or discomfort in the hamstrings. So same thing there. For 90% of all serious hamstring strains, the player felt something in their hamstring the week before. Okay, so those are some pretty significant numbers. I would like to know what the injury data looks like in golf. If a golfer is playing with tightness or discomfort, especially if it's in their low back or their, or their wrist, what is the risk of them suffering a time loss injury within a week? If we can learn what that risk is, it will help us prevent injuries. Okay, think about this. Think about how we use a weather forecast, right? If you check the weather in the morning and you find out there's a 30% chance of rain, then you can take responsibility and think about what you're going to wear and whether or not you're going to bring your umbrella. And your decisions will be partly based on what you're going to do that day. Right? If you're just running some errands, you might not care because there's still a 70% chance that it's not going to rain. It's probably not going to rain. But if you have an important business meeting later that day, then you might be a little more conservative or cautious and bring an umbrella. So that if it does rain, you're not going to show up wet and looking not professional, right? That's the benefit of a weather forecast. You know what the risk is. Knowing injury risk provides us with the same benefit. So instead of having a weather forecast, this injury data 
provides us with a prevention forecast. In soccer, they know that if they have a player with a tight hamstring, there's a 30% chance that player will suffer a time loss injury within a week, right? So there's still a 70% chance the player is not going to get injured. But if they have an important part of their schedule coming up, they may want to be cautious and rest the player for a week, especially since they know that 90% of all hamstring strains were preceded by tightness in the hamstrings the week before. In golf, the two most common injuries are to the low back and the wrist. If a player has a stiff back or discomfort in their wrist, what is the risk of them suffering a time loss injury? What's the prevention forecast in golf? Knowing that risk means that we can have a conversation with the golfer or their coach and show them the risk, right? We can show them the prevention forecast. And if the player and the coach know what the prevention forecast is, then they can make better decisions. They can take responsibility and make better decisions, right? Maybe they have an important event coming up in a few weeks and they're going to be a little cautious and rest for a week. Or maybe the important events this weekend and so they're just going to play through it. And again, we don't know what the prevention forecast in golf is yet, but I think it's coming. And when it does, I'll be sure to share that information with you. Doing injury surveillance also helps us identify the individual risk factors for specific injuries. And if we know what those risk factors are, then we can develop better injury prevention programs. And this is where my passion is. And it's why I'm so proud of the Train Fully programs. As I'm sure you know, I read a lot of research in sports rehab and performance training. The Train Fully programs are developed from that research. And the primary focus is on reducing injury risk. I want my golfers available to play, right? You may have heard the saying, your best ability is availability. Well, this has actually been scientifically proven. There was a really interesting study done by Benjamin Raysmith published in 2016. So he studied track and field athletes. And he found that they were seven times more likely to reach their goal if they were available to play for more than 80% of their training weeks. So again, track and field athletes are seven times more likely to reach their goal if they're available for more than 80% of their training weeks. Studies looking at soccer players confirm this. Soccer players who are part of the second and third team are more likely to progress to the first team if they're available for more than 80% of the matches. So guys, the take home message here is you're going to be successful in golf. If you don't have to modify your training or your practice more than 20% of the time. So if you make injury prevention a priority, you're more likely to reach your goals. Injury prevention enhances performance because you're available to play more often. And if you want to belong to one of the most successful injury prevention programs available in golf, head over to trainfully.com and sign up for my inner circle. We have nine training phases, eight periodized programs, four neuromuscular control phases, each for the core, the hips, and the shoulders. There's blood flow restriction training, and there's a pre-round warm-up and a post-round cool-down. And all of these programs and, and workouts have been carefully designed using the latest research in sports medicine and performance training. And they focus on optimizing range of movement and enhancing neuromuscular control, strength, and power, specifically in the spine, the hips, and the shoulders. They'll not only reduce your injury risk, they'll also enhance and maximize your performance. So head over to trainfully.com and sign up today. Now guys, enjoy the episode. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out either to myself or to Dave.
All right. So our very own Train Fully family member, David Wicks, is back with us today. He's going to give us an update on how his season is going so far on the Sunshine Tour. Dave, welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Thomas. Uh, very well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm excited for this conversation. I know I've had uh, a number of people reach out to me asking how you're doing. Everybody's um uh, very curious and, and cheering for you. So I think this is really good timing. And you have a break now, right now in the season, don't you? Yes. So I have about three weeks until the first two events start again. Uh, I've been back in England for now two and a half weeks. So um, yeah, it was, yeah, little little winter break. Um, so how many events have you played now? Uh, I've played four events. Um, yeah, four main tour events. How would you assess your performance up to this point? Uh, I would say solid. Um, I think maybe solid's a little harsh on myself, but I, I really think I should have uh, at least won or come in the top three in one of the events. Um, but no, to make three of the four cuts and, you know, three top 20s. Um, no, I'm, 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 it was a solid performance. Scoring, you know, scoring was, was better than sometimes my performance, which is always nice. Um, but yeah, I, I would have taken, I would have bitten your hand off for that at the start though you know, the start of my journey out to South Africa. You got off to a really good start. You're top 15 in your first event. What was going through your head on that first tee? So the first tee shot for me is never really a, a nervy one because I always feel like I've got the rest of the round to, if I start with a six, you know, I know I'm going to make five, four or five birdies. So, you know, the, it's not the end of the world if, I, if I'm smart for the rest of the round. But Must be nice. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah but yes not very uh relatable i suppose but um later in the round you know when you're trying to make your first cut um your first paycheck that was difficult you know that was a little bit more difficult to navigate unfortunately i i, I pretty well cruised it by three or four shots for the cut line um but even then you know you're still you know somewhat thinking about you know, you're a little nervous about making your first paycheck. You want to get off to a good start, get points up on the board. It's so important to come in the top 50 of the order of merit on the Sunshine Tour that, you know, you don't want to leave yourself needing to track up points at the back end of the season. Did that top 15 finish in the first event, was that a confidence boost for you or were you expecting to, to play that well? Well, I played pretty poorly, but I scored really well. I really didn't hit it great, and, and I did a lot of things wrong and made some silly mistakes. And um, but but I, I did enough things right to to keep me in the hunt. And then the last day, I, I think I played the last few holes three three under, um, which got me into fifteenth. So that was a confidence boost for sure because I knew if I bought my A game or bought even just you know a fraction better of that game that I had, um, then I would I would compete you know at a pretty good level. So. It was a good confidence boost, and I was really was really happy with that first event. Um, we were in Zimbabwe as well, so it was a new country to navigate to, and it was a, um, a really different experience to South Africa. Um, great experience, loved it, but you know, just hotels and Airbnbs and transfers and things like that was all all quite confusing and complex. So, uh, no, for the first week, I was definitely really happy with it. So you're playing courses that you haven't played before this is your first year on the sunshine tour and a lot of the listeners there they travel to competitive events all over the country and they oftentimes have to play courses that they've never played before what do you do to prepare for a course that you haven't played before it's a great question um I, one question i always ask myself you know especially especially at very well designed courses is is how does the golf course architect or designer want me to play this hole because more often than not that that shows me the most likely chances for me to avoid stupid silly mistakes sometimes I may only get to play what each hole once before we play because I get there on the Monday there might be pro-ams on the Tuesday and Wednesday so I might only be able to play nine holes Monday evening when we once we've got all our hotels sorted out and then Tuesday morning at like 6 a.m we can get on before the pro-am for another nine holes. So I may only get to play 18 holes if I'm not playing in the Pro-Am before the tournament starts. So I need to be really well equipped um, at, at understanding what the hole demands from me. Um, so I like to look at what the, what the architect wants me to do 
where it wants me to, where they want me to hit it, um, and kind of where they, where, where they're trying to punish players effectively is a great way to look at it. So, you know, if you've got a big slope off the left hand side of the green and some bunkers on the right, for me, bunker a bunker shot is not difficult. So I'm looking to move my dispersion or my target line will be further right of the flag towards the centre to the right side of the green to avoid hitting down into this big swell, which leaves me a really difficult up and down. So, um, and that also changes obviously with four different pin positions that obviously changes and you have to, you have to be sort of flexible in the moment. If the pins on the left hand side of the green, you know, and there's some trouble left then you've got no business looking at it. You know, if the professionals are not aiming at the left hand, they're aiming at flags, then no amateur playing amateur event should be looking anywhere near it either, you know? Um, so, so it's very much, it's very much, it's very flexible, obviously, during tournaments, especially with pin position changes. But I do really enjoy sort of looking at how the architect wants me to to navigate the hole. On those practice rounds, are you taking notes for each hole? Yes, definitely. So we get a yardage book, and I'm taking notes for every hole. How far? And, and I, I see a lot of amateurs do this actually. But um, if I'm if I'm playing a hole, I would like to see. I, I won't write what club the club is off the tee. I would just say a number. So. For example, I want this ball to go 220 yards. That one day could be a six iron, or the other day it could be a four iron. So I don't want to write too many clubs down um, because I just want to know the yardage that I want to hit it into. And, you know, we're playing at altitude there. So, you know, 220 yards out there might be, yeah, you know, a smooth six iron. So, um, yeah, that's that's another thing we do, you know, for, for practice rounds. And we're also taking notes of the greens and slopes and, areas we want to avoid uh, maybe a difficult two parts areas and you know um navigate you know avoiding bogey from that 150 yards is so important and the main the main way to do that for me is is to you know don't leave 60 feet over two big tiers and greens and slopes and things sometimes it might be easier to miss the green in a certain location than hit it into hit the green but leave myself a dramatically slopey putt right in your in just your second event, you were leading going into Sunday, and then you had a, a tough start to the fourth round. I think you, were you plus six after four holes, plus after five, plus five. I started plus five, five straight. Runs. A lot yeah. of guys that would have completely unraveled at that point, but you were able to collect yourself, and you actually finished the the, the round quite strong. What did you say to yourself or what did you do to stop that negative momentum? It was a, it was a big learning curve, honestly. It was quite a, um, I almost felt a little embarrassed, you know, after the first five holes. It was a terrible feeling. Um, I, uh, yeah, I just made five, five straight bogeys and I felt like I maybe hit three or four bad shots. Um, things that went for me on the first three days, I had a couple of lip outs and things like that it just didn't quite go my way early on. Um, and I'd spent all morning just trying to, you know, calm down. I did a, like a little more extra meditation, a little more calming things, a little more. And I felt so sort of calm and unengaged that it was really hard to, to sort of dial in and focus. And after five holes and I was five over, I started to get really nervous about shooting like 82. I'm like, I can't, I can't shoot 82. You know, a, this is really embarrassing now. And I got started to get nervous. And then with those nerves, actually sort of heightened my focus, heightened my attention. Um, and I actually started to play some solid stuff. I think I shot three under from then on. Um, so that was definitely a learning curve for me. Like, you know, trying to avoid these nervous feelings was just not not something that I'd, you know, I'd never found luck with it, hope with it or luck with it in the, in the past. So I don't really know why I was feeling it would be any different on the professional stage, but it was a good learning curve. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was good, but to, to pull it back to, to a respectable, you know, top 10 was, was nice feeling, I suppose, but, um, I really feel like I could have, um, I could have won that. And I think in, in the, the more times I get myself in that scenario, I, I really think I will, uh, I will use my knowledge of, you know, previous endeavors in, in, in that sort of respect to to improve upon that and, and i think i'll get a win this season at some point what did you specifically learn that you can apply next time you're in that situation or you're near the top of the leaderboard going into sunday 
Yeah, I, I, I embrace nerves. Embrace my nerves. Uh, I was, I was, I wasn't that nervous, but I was sort of constantly felt like I should be more nervous than I was. Um, but I mean, normally I listen to like quite heavy, maybe some rock or some rap music or something before I play, and I'm like listening to not listening to anything. I'm just trying to calm myself down, doing some breathing exercises. Uh, my warm up was great. Obviously, I had the the, the shoulder in, or the neck slash shoulder injury, so uh, that had improved from the Saturday. So um, I felt physically really good um, compared to what it was before. But it was just it was just something that next time I will not you know deviate from my previous setup and performance um, based stuff that I do to to you know just because of one scenario you know sort of embrace those nerves and kind of I can't enjoy being nervous you know so I don't know why I spent so much time trying to avoid them you know well I remember you you telling me that before because I had asked you a question we were talking about um because you're known actually to be a really good performer under pressure and I and I we were talking about that one day and you said that you had a coach when you were younger that taught you how to not to push that adrenaline and those nerves away but actually use that energy and and yep. learn how to control it uh, mm -hmm. What what type of advice would you give to the listeners that who, you know, they battle nerves and everybody's felt those nerves and they try to push them away? What do you, how do you, you use it to your advantage? Yeah, this is so true. I think um, adrenaline, nerves, anxiety, they all signify that we have done something well or something or we are doing something well or we are performing well because these thoughts build. Um, I recently saw a psychologist and he gave me a great piece of advice and it sounds really stupid and basic, but it says those thoughts that harm us are the exact same thoughts we have when we're deciding what color socks to put on in the morning, you know, they, they're literally just thoughts, but they, they appear, these thoughts appear in numbers and you, you take action and, and note of them when you're under pressure. So I really think that, you know, trying to embrace this feeling that is like, I'm lucky to feel nervous or I'm lucky or I'm doing something well. You know, think of all the people that are my age or, do, or play golf that don't get to feel these nerves that, that watch people on the TV because they want to reenact this, this feeling and they get nervous watching that I'm actually able to live this, you know? Yeah. So and that's an, at any level, that doesn't matter if you're playing in your club championship for the handicap prize or for what I'm doing, you know, that feeling where you've got to feel, you know, lucky to, or, or just grateful to have those nerves. I think that really flips it on its head and you could kind of use those for your benefit. And adrenaline is another one. You can really use that for, for height and distance and, and things like that. Once you're aware of it, you know, then it becomes easier to uh, manage. Are there any practice drills that you use consistently or that you would recommend that can, because it's hard to replicate those nerves and during practice because you're not nervous during practice. Is there anything that you've done to be able to try to replicate that? It's so difficult. I think this is probably the hardest thing for professionals is, is creating some sort of tournament environment when we're trying to, you know, test our skills. So um, that's why I think you see a lot of players, like Ricky Fowler recently, he knows how to win a golf tournament, but since he's rebuilt his skill set and rebuilt his golf career, he's probably going to have to learn to win again like he like he's almost just started the game once more you know so the us open you would have you know fancied he played quite well in the final round maybe he wouldn't necessarily win it all the time but um you know once you start building those skills i think we've seen it with jordan speed as well so i think in terms of practice sort of drills i like to do performance-based drills so i think i've spoken to you about this before but i like to do something along the lines of i have a driving range and a, and a putting green right next to each other where, where I play golf. So I'll do, before I can finish my session, I'll do, I have to hit five drives down this fairway that I've created on the, on the green, on the, on the range. If I hit my five shots down there, I then go to a, the putting green, I hit an eight foot putt, the same eight foot putt. And if I make the eight foot putt, I can leave. But if I miss the eight foot putt, then I've got to go back and do the five drives again. And those five drives, they might take me 20 balls because, you know, you might hit four and then miss one. So that adds a little bit of intensity to my practice. Um, and, it, and it's the same. It might not just be driving. It might be a seven iron to a smaller fairway. But it adds reward and risk. And, 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 and it makes me, um, it makes I wouldn't say it makes me nervous, but it definitely heightens, it get, gets me as close to performance 
in tournaments than, than I felt, you know, than just bashing balls and working on technique. You talked about learning how to win. I've had this conversation with, with a number of people recently who are trying to say, get to uh, scratch golf. And the way they're approaching their round is, is they're just trying to avoid bogeys. They're not necessarily trying to hit birdies. They're just trying to avoid bogeys and, and hit par. What do you do? Like if you're, if you're near the top of the leaderboard and you've done a lot of winning in your career, does your mindset shift if you smell that, you know, that blood that you're, you're, you, you can win this? Is there a switch in your mind or are you always playing the same way no matter what? I think, I think people who are great winners don't, don't get that. I think people who are great winners are just doing focused on themselves. They're like Tiger, I don't think, I know he looked at leaderboards for sure, but I don't think it changed his mindset or what he was there to do on his process. I myself, I'm slightly different, you know. I like to, I think if I'm looking around, if if I'm, you know, just um, on the back nine and I notice the leaderboard and I'm within two or something, I think that would really, that would benefit me to, to so I, I feel, you know, a little bit extra um, to try and go after some, maybe some birdies or make, make some good paths, depending on what the course was like, um, to try and ch- chase up the leaderboard. I'm, I'm more of a, a scrappy winner, I would say. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to make it not difficult. I'd like to, I'd like to win in difficult scenarios. Um, but yeah, there are, there are players that, that definitely, uh, the, the, the best advice you can get for winning is, is that whatever your game plan has been for that week is to just stick by that. You know, it, it, there may be a drivable par four, 17th or whatever it is. And you think you can make a birdie here to win. But I promise you, if, you, if, you, if you've not gone for it all week and you've made, you know, you may not have made a birdie on it all week, but sticking to that process that you have, what one thing you do, you, that means you're sticking to your pre-shot routine, you're sticking to your same thought process, you're sticking to your same swing pattern. If you come out of that routine and out of those patterns, even if you've driven it greatly, you could still, you know, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, in the back of your mind, you're always going to think I should be hitting a four iron up here or something. And you can still make birdie from there. So those processes, you know, I, th- I think one myth in golf is that, you know, Tiger Woods was an extremely aggressive golf player. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he was, he was just unbelievable course management. He would, he would never short side himself. It'd always be pin high. He'd always play to the wide side of the green. If you hear the same from Jack Nicholas, says in a major championship, if, it, if you hit it close, he'd either pulled it or pushed it because he was aiming at the middle of most greens. So you hear these snippets of information, but obviously media obviously kind of dilates it to be, oh, he's played really aggressive because we imagine these shots that Tiger's hit from terrible scenarios. Mm-hmm. But for the bulk of his career, Scotty Scheffler's doing it now. He's amazing at it too. Um, so I would, I would just say stick into that process and think you don't have to do as much as you think to win. You know, winning is, is, is not perfect. It's just shooting one better than the person who's, who's in second place, which sounds basic, but it does not have to be perfect to be achieved. You touched on earlier the injury you suffered uh, going into your second event, and, and it was serious enough that you almost had to withdraw, and we actually had to jump on a call Thursday night after your first round and, and do some rehab. The injury and how it happened is relevant to the listeners because a lot of them travel around the country to competitive events can you explain what the injury was how it happened and how it affected you and your performance so i can explain how it happened you're probably better first to tell what it was but it basically what my all down the left side of my neck was just stiff really stiff um we would think it's from just staying in different beds each week the pillows were terrible we were in a terrible airbnb in zambia um so um yeah i woke up on the friday it was it was tight but it, you know I, I managed to loosen it up with some some rehab and and some some routines that we did on the phone on the thursday night um but then saturday morning i woke up and i could not move my neck one 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 side more than 10 or 15 degrees so we get to the golf course and you know i had to go into the refs and say look what's the deal with pulling out like do I have to pull out before or can I do it on the tee, depending on how it feels? 
I could hit up to about a seven iron by the time we foam rolled it, massage gunned it. Um, yeah, put about half a can of deep, deep freeze on it. Then we went half a can of deep heat. We were just, we just threw the kitchen sink at its neck to just try and get it to loosen up. Um, so I was doing rehabbing and routines all morning. And just as I was going to pull out, the, the, the guy on the putting green said, you can massage gun whilst on the golf course. And I had no idea. I had no idea that was legal. So I asked the refs and they said, that's fine. So Megan was just, who's my caddy, was just massage gunning my neck before I hit shots. And it was the best round I've played on the tour. I played great. I, I swung it really soft, swung it really easy. I hit it probably 20 yards shorter than normal. I think I shot five or six under that day. Um, played really good golf and was, was lucky enough to, to feel okay on the, on the Sunday. But for about 90 minutes of that day, the morning, the warm up, I, I thought that this is it. I'm going to have to pull out one. I'm, you know, fighting for a tournament, which was, you know, worst case scenario. And it wasn't anything serious. It was just a stiff neck, but I, I really couldn't couldn't move. It was it was really bizarre. Yeah, and we learned that it's probably best to travel with your own pillow, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. And I think for the people listening, if if you're going to uh, traveling to a competitive event, I, I wouldn't take any risk. Probably if you can, I would I would take your own pillow with you. I think that's that's probably. Um, a good idea. And I, I know actually there's a number of guys that, that do that on the PGA tour. And one of the guys actually travels, he actually has his bed. I, his name slips on mine, but he actually has his bent or his bed sent around the country to a different events. That makes sense. I, w- I would do that if I had, if I had the logistics company to do that for me around South Africa, yeah. <laughs> that would be great. That'd be a great addition. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, and the, the, the massage guns, percussion, guns so useful now that you can i i think that they're getting so cheap now and, and affordable that i think they're, so, they're just a, a huge asset for anybody um, yeah I've, I've actually had guys do it like as like you did throughout the round i didn't know it was legal on your tour but i know in some of the amateur events they let guys bring them bring uh and, and the girls bring them during the round with them and um we've had some really good success just getting enough capacity to get through the round. Um, you and I, we obviously take, we take preventative maintenance really serious and and mm-hmm. we do a lot of prehab type exercises to make sure your joints are healthy. You have a lot of playing capacity, but you're really busy and there's a lot of travel. Can you explain how you prioritize these exercises and fit them into your busy schedule? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I basically... We pretty much drop any sort of, I don't, I don't really have a problem with strength. So we basically drop most strength training within a month of my first tournament. And then we probably won't touch strength training for majority of the season, maybe on like a couple off weeks or something until we pick it back up in the off season, because it's not something I massively struggle with. And um, as long as I'm not phys- feel like I'm physically getting weaker, you know, um, it's not something I worry about. So my whole routine, fitness routine, is worked around prehabbing and rehabbing. Um, so basically, any time I get to work out is using those corrective routines on trainfully. I have a couple more specific ones for um, my shoulder that we did, we went through and my hip. Um, but a lot of the time, it's probably if, if the correction routines take me forty five minutes, which is about what they do. Um, yeah, I would say it'd be about 45 minutes of correction and then 15 minutes of some, maybe some plyometric or some st- st- stabilization or core or, um, something along those lines. So I'm, I'm really putting, if you were to look at it, about 15% of my weight training or my training routine is actually sort of lifting or, or moving faster than, you know, than I would, than I just, I'm, my whole goal is just to get my body in a position that feels good and in alignment and um because because it really really starts to take your time and then again all this unnecessarily traveling traveling and things my body's tired i don't want to start throwing weights around where my body's you know you're much more liable to get an injury if you're tired or fatigued um so again it's all injury prevention because i can't really afford to not you know continue playing in tournaments yeah and that workload management is is huge and it, it surprises me I feel like the research is a little bit lacking in golf 
um, you know, basketball's done a, a, a great job. Soccer, football, done a great job uh, um, monitoring workload. And because we know that it's actually the workload that is the number one driver of injuries in, in, in sports and in professional sports in particular. So I'd like to see some more research with, with golf because, you know, golf and a lot of practice swings, obviously a lot of swings during the round, a lot of walking. And it would be nice if we had a good system of, of monitoring all that. Um, now, during the season, your, your schedule is, is extremely busy. You're playing event after event after event. So you're probably not practicing quite as much as you would like to. So you have to be really efficient with the time that you have. How do you track and monitor which area of your game needs the most work? So I don't, I, this is a great question, actually. I've gone back and forth on this method. And I'm starting to find uh, a really nice middle ground, but I, I don't really, I practice quite a lot, but I don't practice one thing more than the other. Um, purely based on the fact that if my short game was poor one week or has been poor for a few weeks, I don't want to take focus off of areas that have helped me to produce my short game and get my short game better and maybe sacrifice other areas of my game, which short game for me is the least, most least important thing because I had a lot of greens in regulation. I had a lot of, you know, a lot of good, uh, a lot of fairways. So I'm very cautious of the fact that I continue my practice routines, but what I'll do, let's say I have three hour period and it might be 40 minutes drive on the driving range. Uh, 45 minutes putting and then 45 minutes on a short game area. What I'll try and do in that time where, let's say, my, for example, I, I felt one part of my game was poor. I'll try to just readjust my practice to get back to what my basics have been. So I, so with my coach, I, I work out what my base, what do I like to do? What is my tendencies when I'm chipping my best? And what is my tendencies when I start to chip poorly? So we have like, um, it's like a, it's like a, how would I explain it? It's, some, it's like a sheet. And if I've got, you know, a heavy strike, I look on a, under the, under the list, heavy strike, possible causes, and then I can check those things off to make sure, right, am I swaying off the ball with a chip shot or is my head, is my head, is my head moving? Or maybe is the face too closed? Um, you know, or am I getting too much shaft lean? Things like this. And they're, they're question, they're sort of, uh, it's like a checklist of things to check on if I'm, hit, if, let's say I'm duffing it a lot or, getting it heavy I can go back look at those that checklist check off those things and hopefully find something in there that may feel off in my actual game so the, the dilemma is then just practicing it enough for it to groove into tournament play which can take some time but I have a lot of time to practice it in in areas in small sections so um, but I definitely don't take focus off strengths in my game I almost practice that more mm -hmm. um, yeah, because I really, really thoroughly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, having one or two strengths, really good strength is better than having everything being pretty average. Yeah. And there's one of the, one of the coaches at uh, um, FC Barcelona actually mentioned that talked about uh, a lot of athletes and this applies to any sport think that, the best thing for them to do is work on their weaknesses, right? His philosophy was to work on your strengths because that's what got you to that level. And mm -hmm. so you want to enhance as much of those strengths as, as you can to, to take you to another level because it's not your weaknesses that are going to get you better. It's going to be your strengths. Absolutely. Absolutely. You took a Tiger Woods when he was playing, like he's driving at times was abysmal, but he's, you know, it wasn't didn't see this massive push for him to, to make it a whole lot better you know he still hit these big missions and still all have this big miss inside him and it wasn't like he ever truly mastered conquered that but he's the other areas of his game were so um ad, 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 adapted to to help him that you know those strengths definitely favored you know his weaknesses all right so you've played four events now in three countries how do you adjust your game or prepare your game for different conditions, different weather and all of that? That's a good question. Um, I, well, I, I like to, um, I like to do that all in the, the three days. Cause obviously we arrive on the Monday, we have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to prepare. So I like to do that on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And um, so the big three things I find is that 
how far the ball is traveling, temperature, altitude, um, humidity, anything that might make the ball travel further or shorter than last week. Um, I do green speeds. So obviously how much that's going to affect the ball. If the greens are really fast, the ball's going to break more. Even though I'm reading the same putt that I would on my home course, if they're running a foot and a half faster, that green is going to break more than at my home course. So I have to adjust, adjust my eyes to that. And then chipping, releasing, sort of like pitching and chipping, how far the ball's going to release once it hits the green for a certain type of shot. So for chipping, I like to, I like to just basically get my lob wedge, get my sand wedge and hit chip shots across the green, but, let, but pitching it in the same spot every time with a tee or like a marker. Um, and then from that, I can work out how far it's going to release from 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards, and then go from there. And then that gives me a good base set for the week. You know, if it releasing, if my sand irons, but chip shot is releasing 20 feet from 20 yards, then I can I can transition that and work off of that as a base for in tournaments. You know, um, we're lucky on the tour that I play on. We get our green read, our green speeds as well. So um, I can transition to that. I use aim point, which is a system where you stand on over the over the line and put your fingers out because I find that gets rid of any sort of inefficiencies in my eye reading. You know. Um, and then obviously with the with the altitude and the distance that can change week to week in in, the, in, in, in Africa because of the, the, the severe changes in altitude. So um, that's something I stay on top of by using my track man and, and things like that and, and just and just making sure that you know the ball's going to fly I know at least 10 percent further, but making sure I'm on top of it at what temperature. So if it's early in the morning, the ball might only be traveling five percent further because it's 55 degrees but it's you know once it gets to about midday and it gets above 70 you're probably looking at eight nine percent and then in the afternoon it'll be traveling full 10 percent. so it's something i just have to manage throughout that process and around you know what about something as simple as just the logistics of traveling you know eating and 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 because I, I know you're you're somebody that takes nutrition quite serious as well how do you prepare and, and manage just the logistics of traveling but that was that was brutal at times because a lot of these places they don't really have much you know in zambia and zimbabwe there's not a whole lot you know it's really high poverty areas um so you're you're having to go to restaurants and places that, that only don't accept card or you know and it, it's really difficult the mainstay for me in golfers, there's, there's Nando's. Nando's is a franchise in, in Africa. Um, that's about as far as we can get in terms of staple diet for food and restaurants and things like that. A lot of the other times we're booking Airbnbs and we're, we're trying to cook, going to their grocery stores and trying to cook up whatever we can. But it's, um, it's, it's a def definitely, yeah. It, it, you can't be too nutrition conscious, unfortunately when you're playing on tour because you just do not have the, the one the selection you know i go to the store over here or in america and the protein bar selection the the well, the selection of things we have are just endless whereas there it's still very basic sort of south africa is a little different but in zimbabwe and zambia we were just getting basics basic things you know that necessities and you know, to hit those macros that I was, would love to have hit, it's just not possible. So um, you definitely have to sacrifice a little bit on the nutrition side. But the tour does a great job of directing us to restaurants and things like that that are safe and well-known. But the food is is uh, very different, that's for sure. All right. So then when, when, when does the season, because you're on a bit of a break right now, when does the season start up again and, and how many events do you have left? Uh, so the season starts up in... 17th of july uh no yeah 17th of july we'll go to the wild coast um but then it will run all the way through until march or april which is when the tour championships is so we've got a long stint back over in south africa um there'll be an opportunity to qualify for the seven dp world tour events which is going to be exciting so if you're a sunshine tour player they take you're going to have a Monday qualifier and 10 players qualify for those events each time. So 
there's a big opportunity there and you know you can really rack up some points playing those events and yeah I'm looking forward to it it's going to be a long brutal sort of back end of the season but that's kind of why we play the game you know I do have one more question what, what's your thoughts on the uh the uh the relationship or the merger with live and the PGA tour I really like it I really like it it's good for golf it's good for me um you know it just squashes this whole narrative that you know, it was about what the state represented because I just think that was never the case. It was always, it's always about finances, unfortunately, but uh, I'm, I'm happy it's it's resolved to some extent. I don't think it'd be in the end with the Senate. I think it's just started an investigation. Um, so I think it'll be a long, long process, but it can only benefit golf. I think, I think live is a really interesting concept with the teams. And I really like that idea, especially if they sold them. I think we spoke about it, but if they sold them to the manufacturers, you know, and you had team Callaway, team Titus, team Mizuno, team Shrixen, and they were had these players. I think that sort of really broadens the narrative and makes it a little like F1. And you could almost run that alongside the PGA tour um, for, you know, like the world golf championships used to be. So I, I think there's a good future for it. Um, I don't think anyone should be compensated. I, I really don't think so. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm heavily against that. But, um, yeah, I think it's good for golf. And remind the listeners where they can find you and and uh, track your your season and your progress. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, I have two Instagrams. It's like a social one, and I have a golf-specific one. Uh, one of them is called David Wicks. And the other one's D Wicks Golf um yeah so instagram's pretty much the main space i have a twitter but I, I don't use it much and facebook is just david wicks um yeah so i'm i'm, I'm back for three weeks and then uh then i head off to back to south africa to start start up again competing i'm looking forward to it i really am well we appreciate you coming on again and and um sharing your your advice and your insights with all of us and okay. uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon yeah, any questions, just fire them over and I'm, I'm happy to ask, answer anything or speak to anyone who you know had a question or anything. Please do. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, Thomas. Bye-bye.